You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Joining me, hosting this alongside me, is my dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining me, Dad. Glad to be here. Our audience, I think we're going to have a lot of fun today uh, looking back into really the 20th century and the last 100 years of movie making as we actually just came up on the uh, really the 100th anniversary of what we now know as Warner Brothers Studios. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Chris Yogurt is joining us to talk about his newly released book, The Warner Brothers. Chris has published two other books, Hollywood Hates Hitler in 2020 and From the Headlines to Hollywood in 2016. A little background on Chris. Mr. Yogers is a film and media historian who focuses on the social and cultural impact of popular culture. He has written for the Los Angeles Review of Books, Washington Post, and The Hollywood Reporter. Chris is an associate professor at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. He has a PhD in communication and a master's in critical studies in film and, techno- and television from Regent University. Mr. Yogers received his bachelor's degree in film studies in English from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Chris, uh, thank you for joining us to talk about your book today. This will be fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this is a great American story. I think that's one of the things Bill and I walked away is just like, what a, an American story, um, what a family. What inspired you to write this book personally? Man, it depends on how far back I, I want to go. <laughs> the first book you mentioned was my was my dissertation from the headlines to Hollywood, and the subtitle is "The Birth and Boom of Warner Brothers." So one of the first things I wanted to do was I, I wanted to see. There's in a lot of film history, there's always this talk about how Warner Brothers ripped from the headlines, but no one really kind of parsed that out at length. So I wanted to see like what headlines were they? What were they trying to do? And so a lot of what I found out in that book was how they made topical movies, why they made movies about the culture. Um, but why I did this particular book, and that book really focuses on like 1927 to 1941, just kind of a chunk of time. What I wanted to do, really each book of mine is led into the next one. The second book I wrote, Hollywood Hates Hitler, is about in 1941 when the Senate went after Hollywood for making anti-Nazi movies. And I came across Harry Warner's testimony, and I just thought, wow, this this man is incredible. Um, and of course, I, I learned a lot about him for my first book. And I, what I wanted to do was write a book about Harry because he doesn't get enough credit in the literature that's out there. Mm-hmm. And then I ran into uh, Pat McGilligan, who's a, a, a wonderful biographer and also an editor um, at Kentucky Press. And I told him about my project and he suggested I should do all of the Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking on the much bigger project as a way to put Harry in his, give give him his due because so much of the history uh, of Warner Brothers focuses on Jack, who was the young one. He was the clown. He was outspoken. He was, he was all kinds of things, good and bad. And he gets a, a lot of credit because of that. But I think what Warner Brothers is and what it still seems to have 
is a, a part of Harry Warner. And Harry was the social conscience. Harry was the one who was was really eager to use movies for educating people and for public good. So that's really, really what I wanted to focus on. So let's start by teaching us about Ben and Pearl Warner's background. We just love great immigrant stories and, and families. So tell us about the parents. Sure. So Ben and Pearl uh, were they were raising the the first Warners uh, in what is what is around what is now Poland. Uh, it's a much longer name that I'm still not sure how to pronounce, and I'm not going to embarrass myself and anybody <laughs> else. Um, but they're from that part of the world, and this is a part of the world where being Jewish, you know, what the, the powers that be did not agree with. They were they were um, practicing their religion in secret. Uh, and they were constantly in fear of, of being raided, and they, you know, they decided they needed to get out of there and raise their family somewhere else. So it was like you said, it was a real immigrant story. Ben came over, uh, had a couple false starts, you know, finally got got a couple jobs, uh, was able to send for the rest of his family, and kind of, you know, one by one or couple by couple, they each, you know, they made enough money to send for the next sibling or relatives and, and got everybody to the U.S. And we really started from nothing. And, you know, the Warners had a lot of successes and failures um, throughout the late 1800s into the early 1900s. They had learned a lot before. I mean, this year, was, I think, as you said, you know, it's the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. You know, it's the 100th of the Warner Brothers studio incorporating. But mm-hmm. by 1923, they had they had learned a lot, and they were they were seasoned veterans by the time they incorporated their company. They had a lot of successes and failures, and it really came down to Ben and Pearl. Uh, going back to them, they they were the backbone of the family. They were the the staunchest supporters of their kids. Uh, you know, multiple times they they would sell everything they had, or they would give up their savings. So, so the family had another start at the next business venture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were truly Ben's uh, saying that his, that Harry took to heart for sure was this one for all, all for one, one for all kind of mentality that yeah. the family stays together. Uh, they will always not just succeed but survive, given where they came from and the and the dangers they were facing. Um, survival was was not a given. So, uh, it's. It's just, it's an incredible story where they re- truly came from nothing and, and built something incredible. So Ben Americanized the family name. And I always, Chris, I just, I find this very interesting to study from a historical perspective. Um, just so you know, you're talking to a couple Smeeds who were formerly Schmeeds, like the German Smith, in a prior generation. We don't see this today like we saw it, you know, in the earlier 20th century or even much of the 20th century. You know, using, I'll use Ben and Pearl as an example. I think there was an incredible humility and also, to your point, the willingness to adapt. In other words, they came for opportunity. They were going to adapt to whatever they needed to do to succeed, including their name. Do you think a lot about that uh, change where you're saying, I'm going to give up my name because I want to succeed in America? That's that's a Good point and a good question. I mean, I, I've looked back, you know, at my last name too, Yogurst, and you know, it, it, you know, you get into the the 19th century, and you know, the spelling changes, and there's, you know, it's. I still need to do more work on that, my own family background, but it, that that is interesting that there was this. It was just like a cultural acceptance that, well, and some of it was also maybe not. 
intentional, right? You come through Ellis Island and whatever they heard you say is what your last name is. But I do know that Ben made, Ben and Pearl made the distinct decision to, you know, name their youngest children something that would sound American or sound, Mm -hmm. you know, normal for lack of a better term here. And I get the sense really from all of them that that wasn't, it just seemed like, you know, one an easy hoop to jump through to get to the next thing. Um, And that was, we saw this throughout Hollywood too. I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, the Warner brothers are kind of an example, an exception because they, they were not afraid to say who they were and where they were come from. Whereas somebody like a a Louis B. Mayer um, or a Harry Cohn very much uh, tried to, you know, Americanize themselves, their entire background, everything about them. Uh, whereas the Warner Brothers were not afraid to brand themselves as the immigrant story. So I think it's something they were also proud of. You know, they were simultaneously proud of their adopted country and proud to be here, proud to be an American, but also proud of where they came from. And I think that's something something I took away uh, definitely from the Warners. An early story of Jack was very telling about his life. Tell us the story of Jack with the rabbi from your book. (laughs) Yeah, so the thing about Jack is he, Jack's a storyteller, um, and going through his memoir is tricky because uh, there's some stuff that's obviously not true, some stuff where he's elaborated, um, but then there are certain things in there that I included in the book that, if not completely true, still really speak to Jack's character, and this is one of the stories where you know, their parents had for the, especially for the younger siblings. So that that's the other thing to point out where you have Albert and Harry are very old world. They, they spent enough time, enough of their life um, in the old world that, that they, they knew that uh, as well as the new world. Whereas Jack and Sam didn't really have that. And of course, Jack was born in Canada when one of their failed families failed ventures up there has been as a fur trader. Jack, you know, so they brought in this rabbi to help you know, teach about their culture and about their faith and all this kind of stuff. And Jack just was not having it. And and Jack, in his memoir, he tells a story of getting getting poked by the rabbi and, and him, Jack pulling his, his hair and pulling his mustache or whatever. And that, you know, that story of a young Jack, whether true or not, it perfectly encapsulates Jack where he it was, is, Jack. that was his attitude. Yeah. yeah. That was his attitude towards the family. He's like, Oh, you think this is what I'm, I should do. All right. Well, I'm going to do this other thing. And you know what? And, and I have no, even if that exact story wasn't true, I have no doubt he treated rabbis that way as a kid. I'm just sure he did. The Warner brothers, they always wanted to be wealthy. And I think you touched on a story where like they hugged their mom and one of them said like, mom, we're going to be millionaires someday. I think, you know, trying to understand, like we, a lot in our work, we try to understand, you know, people that have built up a lot of wealth, like the Warners, for example. And I think it really shows the story of like self-selection as well. In other words, they they were self-selecting their outcome. And you just don't often hear people say, you know, you're wealthy because you were unequivocal that you were going to do that someday. And, and these, these men really had that going for them. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I never really, I don't know if I really thought about that angle before. I mean, I think for, I mean, yeah, that's a, I use that story just because I think I think it was Sam who said that, if I remember correctly. First of all, that speaks to their confidence. Sure. That there was, there's just this unshakable, no matter what they went through, 
you know, the, the whole family had this unshakable confidence that, you know, we're, even the biggest failures that they faced with, they're just like, all right, well, here's what we got to do next. So I think it speaks to that. But I also think it speaks to people who, who come from nothing and there's just this fearless move forward attitude. Um, and, and I think for some of them, um, Sam, I, I can definitely see, even, even though he died young, um, unfortunately, um, you know, Sam and Jack, I think, really wanted to be wealthy and they wanted to be flashy. Uh, whereas I think Harry really, and this comes through in the book, you know, every chance I, I, I had to make the point where his goal was, was less that and more to, to try to do something good with what he has gained. Um, and he, his focus was always on, uh, what are the ripple effects of my actions? So I think for for Harry, the money was the byproduct of doing something that he thought was far more important. Uh, whereas I think with some of the other brothers or the younger brothers, anyway, I think it was some of it was definitely fueled by we want to be wealthy. So on Sam, Sam was the kind of ingenious, the tinkerer with the technology. Can you can you explain what what his role was and what fascinated him the most? Yeah, Sam was definitely, and you know, every other book that talks about the Warners, I mean, mentioned Sam as the technical genius, which he certainly was. Um, he was, and you mentioned that you know, Tinkerer is perfect. I mean, he was the one who who really got the brothers into the the film business in the first place by buying a projector um, that a you know a tech savvy you know a colleague of his was working on, um, or somebody that he knew. And brought home this projector with the the great train robbery, and the family watched it and were awestruck. And it's kind of this great beginning, but that really kind of set in motion something for Sam. I mean, even when they were in and out of of dabbling with film, I mean, he we went and worked for Hale's Tours, which was part of kind of this early development of film, where they would use film or moving pictures. Uh, and they would they would project it uh, while people were sitting on like a a, a kind of a, a still train car that would be kind of be wobbling to give the the uh, the feeling of movement, and you know he was very wrapped up in this 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 idea of like what can we do how can we expand this technology what how sure. else can we present this to people so you know projecting it in their in their front yard on a, a bed sheet to you know working for some of these kind of carnivalesque things to working uh, you know to looking at Nickelodeons to opening their first theater in 1905 uh, you know the backbone of a lot of those very first movements are are Sam being able to figure out how to market uh, what he's learned. I just attended the Barbie movie in a movie theater in the small town I grew up in that I, I went to when I was an eight or nine or 10 year old. Uh, they were not so much a city phenomena as they were a rural and suburban process. I think of the movie, The Last Picture Show, for example. I, I explain this to our listeners. Yeah, so the Warners got their start in Western Ohio, um, outside of Pittsburgh. They were in um, Newcastle and Niles, and they so they had a couple different theaters um, that they yeah this was this was a suburban phenomenon. I mean one of the things that was big in cities um, where I mentioned Nickelodeon. So like if you know anyone's listening that doesn't know old film history, this is literally like uh, a little machine that you put a nickel in and you look in a little viewer and it plays a short reel of film. Um, and it was it was really seen as a lesser than, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens on the dingy side of town, wrong side of the tracks kind of 
attitude towards this kind of exhibition. And what the brothers were doing were trying to present something to a bigger audience. Uh, and they certainly weren't, they weren't the only people doing this at the time, but it was, like you said, a rural phenomenon where it's like we can, you know, they're, we're not in a city center. We're not in a big city. We're not, there's not a ton of things going on. So if we open up a theater, we can get 50 people in here. This is going to create a little phenomenon. And that's actually exactly what it did in their Newcastle Theater. Uh, people were lined around the block to see what was in there. Um, and it was so popular, they had a hard time changing over audiences. People just wanted to sit there all day and watch what they were projecting because <laughs> yeah. it was new to everybody. Um, so this was, yeah, they really they really struck this phenomenon at the right time where it was really starting to grow um, in, in rural areas that were... Um, not rural in the sense where there's like nobody there, but there's, you know, these small towns where there just wasn't, you know, there wasn't a ton going on and there was clearly people looking for, for entertainment. And this, this filled a, a void very quickly. Probably attracted a lot of people to cities after that. Uh, war movies became a very common theme across your book. My four years in Germany was an early example of the power of war emotions. Talk to our audience about this movie and that genre for the Warner Brothers. Yeah, so My Four Years in Germany was a book they adapted from uh, an ambassador who was, uh, Ambassador Gerard, who, who was in Germany. And uh, Sam found this book, uh, this was really the start, what this really was the start of, not only of them looking at war-related movies, but also them looking at topical movies. Like the they saw this book in a bookstore. They're like, oh, people are reading this. If we make a movie about this, you know, not only will it be interesting, but people who've read the book are now going to want to see the movie. So they were really early on trying to license uh, the rights to popular books and and added to the fact that this was, you know, about uh, a war and a place uh, where we are currently involved. You know, the world was, you know, the, the spotlight of the world was on this part of the, the world. Their ripped from the headlines mentality is at play here too, where they're like, this is topical. People are talking about it anyway. Why don't we engage in that? So they're very interested in something that everybody was talking about. And they really, how they landed this book was, at least the legend is that, you know, Sam and Jack at this time were, were in Los Angeles. So they had already bought some property in Los Angeles. They had something near downtown was apparently near the Selig Zoo, and the Selig Zoo is famous for having the the MGM Lion that they recorded um, for for the openings of those movies. Um, and Sam had found it and had called his brother, who was in New York. So, uh, and for most of this history, Albert and Harry are in New York. That's where really, even in the golden age of Hollywood, the the heads of all these businesses were in New York. The studio bosses were in L.A. So they called uh, Harry and said, "We got it. We got to have this thing." So Harry uh, f somehow found out where the ambassador was going, uh, hopped on a train, met him somewhere, got a meeting, landed the rights, uh, and they made the movie. And it was their first kind of bigger success, ripping from the headlines, engaging in topical content that really helped put their name out there and and lead them in those next five years towards uh, incorporation as Warner Brothers. Another theme of your book is them making what I'll call socially aware movies. Harry originally tried this in 1921, but as you pointed out, it tanked. Why do you think he persevered through that? Um, you know, what, what, what made Harry want to continue to go down that route? 
Yeah, this goes back to their their fearlessness. I mean, you look at that the history before 1923. I mean, they had theaters, they had exhibition chains, um, you know, some some of which got you know their Duquesne Amusement Supply Company got shut down by Thomas Edison, and that's a, mm-hmm. that's a whole that could be its own own book, own book, yeah, a, about yeah. the Edison Trust and how he shut down everybody that was competing with him, claiming he had the patents on everything, and he had investigators and people to shake. I mean, that's a whole story. Um, you know, so going through that, going through, you know, you know, one of their, you know, rise out of the ashes was, a, you know, this grocery store and Harry bought too much bulk meat and it spoiled. It was like, oh, it's going to cost effective buying bulk, but we can't sell it fast enough. You know, so that, you know, so they've had they had so many failures by that point and and came back stronger every time that I think by the time they had a movie that came out and tanked. I mean, it sucks, but it's. You know, it was like, all right, well, that that happened. So what do we do next? I mean, that's been their mentality all along. So I think that that persevered Harry, you know, through so all the brothers, really, until you get to the end and it you know becomes a different story, kind of sad in the late 50s. But, you know, those early years, you know, everything was so important. But, you know, they you know, they, they had more than one movie. You know, they they were it was a lot of trial and error that the whole industry was doing that. A lot of trial and error. What kind of movies work? Are we going to do feature films? Are we going to do long films, short films? Are we going to do serials? You know, everything was on the table. Sound, not sound. And yeah, it was just it was just a part of that. You know, I get no sense of, of any of this, you know, any people that knew Harry or any of the interviews from Harry that he just, I, I don't think anything scared this guy. So another theme uh, throughout the book is, I'll call it censoring and regulation around movie making. The idea that Hollywood is a basket case affecting America, as you point out in your book, that's a really old song. I mean, that's been sung a lot of times. Explain the importance of the role that Will Hayes with the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors Association took up in the early 1920s. Yeah, so the, the, the MPPDA is what the earliest version of what is now the MPA with the Motion Picture Association. So, um, and, and what eventually became the rating system that we have now, which transitioned in the late 1960s. Um, but what Will Hayes, his role was, so in the early 20s, Hollywood was, you know, you know again, like you said, the, the old song, it was it was a place of crazy people, of degenerates, of the worst kind of society, all of the rest of it. And it was going to, you know, Hollywood was, was going to erode the moral fabric. So there sure. was all this talk of, well, does the government need to come in and regulate this thing? This industry is getting pretty big. You know, there's theaters all over the place. You know, they've got a lot of market share. It's all growing. What do we do with it? So being pretty politically savvy, the industry decided to bring in um, a self-regulator who was an industry insider, or was a government insider, rather. So Will Hayes, his role, he was the postmaster general for the Harding administration. So part of his job was to regulate the mail. Um, And there's lots of stuff during this era of, you know, indecency through the mail. And that's, that's a whole thing that probably helped Hollywood get some street cred with the any kind of government regulators by bringing in Hayes. So Hayes comes in to be the the industry watchdog, uh, and they put together uh, some rules and regulations, do's and don'ts um, that evolved and devolved for a decade. Um, of course, kind of the funny part of the story is that Hayes comes in to regulate Hollywood, but 
nobody really pays attention. <laughs> nobody, nobody. Uh, as far as the the content of movies, people are still producing whatever they want. Which, of sure. course, by the '30s, this becomes a problem when the Legion of Decency rises up and there's boycotts of Hollywood and all the rest of it. But for his entire career, from 22 until 45, I think he retired somewhere in there. He was he was kind of the the conduit between Washington and Hollywood. And, you know, trying to, you know, keep relations there kosher, I suppose. So Warner Brothers went public, uh, as you noted, with a $50 million capitalization on April 4th, 1923, which that was a lot of money back then. So it just sounds like pennies now, but it's huge. The Warner Brothers understood that how they needed access to capital for their business. They brought Waddell Catchings uh, of Goldman Sachs onto their board. You know, one thing that doesn't show up in the book is they never really run into financial problems or, or kind of dire straits versus, as I know from reading another book about Zanuck, I mean, Fox, they failed in so many respects um, at one point. Um, you know, was, was it just the family's ability to fail or their, their understanding of how they wanted to treat this great business they were building? And that's why they didn't deal with the same trouble that others in the industry did? Yeah, that, that Fox was kind of a sad scenario where Fo- William Fox was overextended and then he he got in a really bad car accident and had some health issues and was like kind of indisposed when he needed yeah. to be front and center. Uh you know, in the, the Great Depression all you know so he lost all of that and it was picked up by 20th Century which you know was a separate studio at the time. The with the Warner Brothers, I mean they did they, they did have some I mean I think really what what helped Harry was and really all the brothers is that they were able to they did a lot of investing at the right time in the right place. So they mm-hmm. were, um, like you said, you mean dumping a large sum of money into taking this thing public and pulling in the right people. I know another banker that they that, that was very influential was uh, Motley Flint, who was able to get them, you know, big loans to keep growing in the late twenties. And this is one of the reasons why the the effects of the Great Depression didn't hit Warners as bad and it didn't hit them as soon because throughout the the 20s, uh, the Warner Brothers were able to invest and expand. And every time they had a big success, that would go right back into investing for something else for the company. And, you know, by the time the depression hits, not only have Warner Brothers uh, really started to move the needle as far as sound movies and really getting the entire industry to shift that direction, but also, he buys First National, which was where their lot is now in Burbank, was originally sure. the First National lot, and that they had a theater chain, and that was one of the big, the big things for Harry was well, if we can, we can have some guaranteed sales, right? This is part of their ver- vertical integration that became so controversial. The entire industry, if they can own some theater chains, then you know, even if things get bad, you know, you can have, you, you, some of your movies aren't super popular or go over budget or whatever. You have a safe bet that you're going to get X amount of theaters, no matter what, because you own them. So you have, you know, by 1929, they've got, they've got big stars. They've, they've, they've got name recognition. They've got, they're leading the industry in sound. They have multiple uh, production lots um, and they have now a, a theater chain. So they they had they had a lot of ammunition to move forward and, and move into the 30s in an incredibly strong position, even though they were pretty extended <laughs> to the banks uh, as a lot of the companies were. But I think that they were they were just in a better position of um, 
Yeah, I guess I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head. Either, either not in as bad of debt, or at least making enough money to keep keep from you know getting too far underneath these things. We, we don't want to skip over something you just hit on. Uh, Harry decides that pictures with sound are a real phenomena relatively early on. Explain the deal they struck with Western Electric and the technology that came out of this. Right. Well, and this comes from Sam first. I mean, again, going back to the tinkerer, right? He was yeah. the one who was... But but he, but he needed Harry's blessing, though, right? You know, it was like Sam figured it out, but Harry had to realize it, too, to kind of push... That was the political capital, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. He didn't think people would be... And he had every reason... Everybody had every reason not to to be for sound. Because, again, if you think about it, if you're, if you're starting a... If, if your industry is starting to go global... It's a it's a hell of a lot easier to change out intertitles in silent movies to whatever language yeah. the you know is the primary language of the country you're selling to as if the as opposed to if the entire thing is recorded in English. Now what? Um, so it was you know th- there was understandable pushback uh, because it's 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 a lot harder to sell your product globally if it's stuck in a single language. So a lot of studio bosses and presidents were not on board with sound. This was one of the reasons. It was also expensive. It was clunky. But Sam, yeah, Sam had been messing around with some engineers at Western Electric. And they had been producing uh, and playing around with with some short films. And just what what Harry, what Sam ended up doing, so the, how he convinced Harry was he, he brought him into a soundstage to see a band, or so he told him. And what he showed him was a a band playing on the screen with the sound synchronized with the film coming through speakers. And it sounded like the band was really there in the room. And that even Harry had, had admitted in speeches in the late twenties was that was, he corroborated Sam's story that this, that was exactly when he was completely sold. He realized, all right, people will, we can sell this. And that was the thing that, that Sam's genius was, was not only figuring out, the technological part of it, because it was, I mean, there, you can get real, real nerdy on this. I mean, it was, there was, there was sound on film and sound on disc. And what, what Sam was doing was sound on disc and everything that became shortly thereafter sound on film, where the soundtrack was actually on the film strip. Uh, that was the movie yep. technology. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That was what Fox had and, and so, had Fox not gotten into the issues that he did, he might've won that battle actually. <laughs> Um, so sound on disc was is where you st- you have to start the film and you start essentially a massive record at the same time and it better be right otherwise it's you know the sound's going to be off so it was real tricky and it was real easy to mess up you know if, uh, you know I know when they were so what they did was uh, how they got this technology was of course working with Western Electric and being a- being able to to lease some of this but then uh, when Harry was won over. Uh, you know, he was the money man. So he he approved uh, the company to purchase um, Vitagraph, which was a company in Brooklyn that had uh, sound on film technology and they were using it. They were making short films. Um, so Warner Brothers bought this. They renamed it Vitaphone and they started making short films and they, you know, they slowly started ramping up to the jazz singer when they're making feature length films. So they made Don Juan in 1926, where the sound, the synchronized sound is just sound effects. And then Jazz Singer, where it was mostly a silent film, but there's also synchronized dialogue and singing in that as well. And then 1928, we get the first full-length sound film, Lights of New York, which is a gangster film, which is very on brand for Warners. 
but it was this whole this whole trajectory, you know, wouldn't have happened without Sam working with West, Western Electric and learning the technology, learning you know how to use it, what are the pitfalls of it, how to perfect it, and then also you know convincing you know the his, his oldest brother uh, that it's worth investing in. And that's one of the things that, you know, some people will, you know, incorrectly say, you know, Warner Brothers invented sound movies. It's like they didn't invent sound movies. What they did do is they perfected the marketing of it. They were able to bring it to market better than everybody else. Because even Thomas Edison had weighed in on this and said that it's not going to happen because he couldn't do it. <laughs> You've circled around. Explain the sound experience that this movie provided to the audience. And we, by the way, just so you know, Chris, we pulled it up on YouTube because we wanted to get a sense of like what was this. And, and I would recommend to our listeners, you should pull this up on YouTube to understand, you know, what, what this phenomena was. Don, we watched Don Juan, for example. Oh, yeah. Right. So, yeah, your, your silent film, for anyone who hasn't seen a silent film, um, it's it's basically you know the, all the dialogue in the movie is is placed with intertitles. So there'll be images, images, images of people moving, and then there'll be a, a, a frame where there's words on it, and the audience just reads that. Um, and any sound in the auditorium would generally be played by a band or by a piano or an organ or something like that. Sometimes it was written for the movie. Sometimes it was the the artist making stuff up for the movie. Filler. What they're doing with with the sound on disc is they're bringing uh, actual, you know, essentially your first sound effects into the theater. So with Don Juan, you have like sword fighting and stuff like that. And you can hear the clanking of the swords and that's going to be, uh, you know, coming through speakers. And that was another problem was amplification. And this is something that Sam worked with Western Electric on. That's, uh, you know, you have a big auditorium the technology, you know, a lot of the speakers weren't loud enough, didn't have enough power to reach the back rows. So they did a lot of work on this. So they they did, you know, again, the short films, Don Juan with the sound effects. And then uh, the jazz singer is part of it is still a silent film where you have the words on intertitles. And then, you know, it ramps up to this big number where Al Jolson is singing. And now all of a sudden it's it's you can hear him talking through the speakers and you can hear him singing through the speakers. And it's a uh, it, it was a transformative event. It was they made a big deal of it. They they premiered it in New York. Uh, every celebrity who was in New York was at the screening. It seemed like um, I know the new movie Babylon. If you guys saw it, uh, you know he recreates some of this in that movie. Uh, and that really, you know, it, it was really kind of the perfect storm of, of marketing and tech savvy. To, to sell the audience, not only like, is this the new thing, but it can work and we can make a real show of it. It's, it can be fun and it can be the next thing for movies. A very important line comes up in your book that I, I have to quote because I just think you really kind of touch the heart and the soul of, of what's important in this industry. Um, quote, Sam's final years taught the brothers a valuable lesson. Don't wait to find out what the audience wants. Don't be afraid to show them the possibilities of the future, end quote. We've just come out of this world over the last few years, Chris, where everyone thought we were going to sit at home watching movies and an algorithm was going to tell the movie studio, aka Netflix, what we wanted. But that's really looking at the audience and saying, well, what do they already like? That doesn't expand the mind of what we might dream or hope or think about that we haven't thought of before. That, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, yeah, well, yeah, Sam really 
show, I mean, it, it really did see seem like Sam could see around the corner of the mm-hmm. future uh, in so many ways. And I, I think that, yeah, he really did teach them that, you know, whatever they, you know, Warner Brothers was known of, of always having the finger on the pulse of, of the, the, of society, of what people were thinking about. Uh, and yeah, it, it, you know, Sam was, I mean, Sam was the one who found, you know, read the book, My Four Years in Germany. Uh, you know, I, it, and I think that going forward, so Sam, you know, sadly dies, you know, the day before the jazz singer premieres and that, you know, that's a whole episode in the book um, and something that had endless ripple effects for the family. But when you look at the years following Sam's death, uh, you know, they didn't slow down with any of their innovation and expansion and trying new things and trying to get out in front of the culture and trying to be on top of the moment. Um, and, and you're right. Yeah, the algorithms, yeah, everything, you know, looking at it today, yeah, they only know what we've done, Correct. not what we want in the future. So there, there's still this important human element where you kind of have to be sitting there in the moment um, and looking at your surroundings to really get a sense of what could be next. And we're going to come back. We're going to come back to that. That That's a really good point, what you just said. So we'll come back to that because I think that's what your book, your, it touches the pulse of that. Yeah. The Burbank studio wasn't much originally. Teach our audience what the genesis of that land was and how the Warners uh, became the owner of it. Yeah, there's there's somebody in my book I found, um, one, of the, one of the technicians, on the, or actually the studio librarian, he had, mm-hmm. he had mentioned how, you know, not long before First National was there, it was all farmland. Um, and that that's the thing about, you know, just LA in the early 20th century was not anything like it is now. And, um, or even close, you know, so much of it was, you know, there was still farmland, there were orchards, there was all this kind of stuff. And they, uh, yeah, they bought First National, but when they bought First National, the lot was not very big. I mean, they had a lot of land to expand, sure. um, but the lot was not very big. And um, so what, what they were doing, when they bought the land in Burbank, they were producing movies um, at what's known as the Bronson Studios. And that is currently owned by Netflix, so it's a Netflix building now. But the Bronson Studios is where they did their early sound movies, where the Warners did, uh, you know, they started their, you know, other ventures there, their animation, which the brothers could have cared less about, um, uh, or couldn't have cared less about, rather. Um, but the the Burbank Studios grew so fast. I mean, there's one, one example I always like to give is there's a really fun movie. I love movies about movies because it tells us a lot about what the industry was thinking, sure. uh, how they like to print their own legends. And they made a movie called Showgirl in Hollywood in 1930. And in the back, you know, so they're using the the lot to, to be a backdrop for this movie because it's about this girl in Hollywood. And in the background, you can see all of these lots and sets and stuff like being built. Like that was just, it, it gives you this snapshot of Warner Brothers in this huge growth period just by watching the background of that movie. So it's really kind of cool to get that snapshot, that that piece of time. And um, yeah, and they kept, they kept the Bronson lot for a little while. Um, but yeah, it wasn't long before everything was at Burbank. I mean, for a while it was Burbank, or it was Warner's First National. I think they... You know, they they kept the the other name probably for some tax purposes and you know siphoning money different ways. But uh, yeah, the Burbank lot grew really fast. And if you ever get a chance to to walk around that lot, I mean, you can you, all the buildings have dates on them, and they're almost all in like the 30s, late 20s, early well, 30s. I, I, mean, you I can, was gonna, I was gonna say you just made me think of like three movies: L.A. Confidential, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and Entourage. 
right? Movies about Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I love all of those for different reasons. And then, and then you made me think of, in 1968, the most popular comedy TV show was called Laugh-In, and there was just a standing joke about it being broadcast in Burbank. That was like a, always a humorous for Rowan and Martin, the two MCs. They were constantly joking about Burbank in 1968. Right, and, it, well, and like the Tonight Show always it was always like live from Burbank. So yeah, it's like Burbank definitely got on the map pretty fast. Um, and yeah, there wasn't a ton there when the Warners showed up. And even now it's still, I mean, I'm going out there for a research trip in a couple of weeks. I always stay in Burbank because it's like this little, it still feels like a little burg. You know, it doesn't feel like you're in LA. We, we think people believe we're in a more dangerous world today. Uh, and we also think it's probably chronological snobbery. Motley Flint was a big financial backer of the Warners. As you mentioned earlier. I explain what happened to him with Julian Petroleum. Oh, oh, oh Motley. Yeah, Motley was, was great to the Warners. I mean, he, unfortunately, he was involved in, in the Julian Petroleum scandal, as you said, and um, was, you know, had to testify. And, um, you know, somebody that, that was on the wrong side of of this whole scandal, lost all of his money, showed up in the courtroom and, and murdered Motley. Um, but, but Motley was, you know, even the Warners had said uh, that their, their, their biggest expansion period, that late twenties, early thirties wouldn't have happened without him because this was still a time uh, where there was, you know, and I have several examples in my book where they had a hard time doing something because some power that be or some gatekeeper knew they were Jewish um, you know, Sam had a hard time getting a home with his wife until they, you know, realized she was a Catholic, and, and they're like, "Well, I guess you're okay now." Uh, and and Motley was one of these bankers that was able to to support them. Clearly, clearly not uh, all of him was great, uh, but but yeah, he was Jack and Harry both said that, and I think Jack was a was a pallbearer at the funeral, if I remember correctly. Uh, he was hugely essential for them getting um the loans that they they that they got to expand really from that sound period into the Burbank period. So crime crime was big in the 1930s during prohibition. Al Capone was big news in the culture. The Warners uh, were on the edge and you kind of explain this for both crime and really kind of you know the sexuality that was present in the culture as well. Mervyn Leroy pressed for Little Caesar as it reflected the real world brutality uh, as what he mentioned in and you quoted in your book. Was this great for business, but going to ask for really just troubles in the censor world? And also, it, you know, it's like admitting the social norms that are being touched and, and twisted at the time, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I mean, this was a, this is so once you get to the early 30s, this is what a lot of people refer to as the pre code era, where, you know, it's the code was there, but it's really like pre enforcement. The production code didn't really get enforced strictly until uh, like August of 1934. So the early 30s were these kind of wild west years where it was early sound and 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 there were a lot of really courageous filmmakers and producers just kind of putting everything out there and the Warner Brothers were really on the front lines of pushing boundaries and 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 this is where the ripping from the headlines really really showed itself and uh, and that's why that first book, I did, that's why I really focused on the early 30s, because it's it's not just the gangster films, but the musicals are all 
steeped in the depression. You know, there are all these backstage musicals about singers and dancers and choreographers trying to get this next play off the ground. Otherwise, they're going to be on the breadline next week. Um, you have, you know, great movies like uh, I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, where the Warner Brothers are literally harboring a, a fugitive from a chain gang on their lot to advise the film, doing this secretly. Mervyn Leroy talks about it in his memoir, uh, some good stories uh, about that. And they did get flack for this. I mean, that with the gangster movies, I mean, yeah, you've got, I mean, the the, the real big ones, right? Little Caesar and Public Enemy with James Cagney. Um, they did get some flack for this. And, you know, people asked questions like, well, are you perpetuating? Are you, you know, popularizing violence? Are you making it look cool? And I, I know at least one one part of the book, I think I quoted Harry saying like, hey, we didn't invent gangsters. We didn't invent crime. <laughs> We're just showing right? This is like, yeah. So, so yeah, why don't, you, why don't you go after the newspapers that are reporting this stuff? So again, there, you know, that, was, that was, you know, the organized crime and, you know, bootlegging, all of that, right? You're talking prohibition era, um, you know, like you said, Al Capone, but also once you get into the early 30s, you've got the big, you know, bank robbing spree, you know, Body and Clyde and Dillinger and, and all the rest of them. That stuff is big headlines, um, and when you got a studio that is known for for taking the news of the day and turning it into movies, um, it's it's no surprise that a lot of this stuff directly or indirectly shows up on Warner Brothers movies. Well, you also point out though, and I think this is interesting to think of the context of like Hollywood. You know, looking back, say the last twenty to thirty years, Harry was a social conservative. He believed in marriage. And doing the right thing in all circumstances. And that obviously flowed through in his philanthropy and his goodwill towards other people, et cetera. Is that something that's missing? It's almost like, you know, the only thing that's not present in Hollywood at times is a social conservative like Harry. It, 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 do you see that too? Or do you look and say, well, there are there are people like that out there? Because he he became scarce the later in his career he 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 you know he went in Hollywood as well. Yeah, he's and that's one of the things that interests me about Harry because he he is so different from everyone else, even at that time, you know. And I, in, in Hollywood, it's a weird thing, like you know, married to the same person your whole life, you know, weird, <laughs> you know, <that's, laughs> that doesn't that doesn't happen in Hollywood, right? Um, and he's he was, and that and that's that was one of the big tensions between him and Jack because Jack. You know, he was married a couple times, but Jack was also this guy that was, you know, he had the wife and then he had the girlfriend. And Jack, that, Jack that, was Hollywood. That's the reality right. to it. He, Jack he is was Hollywood. The, yep. And, and there's that story I have in my book where like Harry Cohn came over to Harry's, Harry Warner's place with his mistress and Harry ushered the kids upstairs really fast because he knew even, even though the kids had no idea that that wasn't Harry Cohn's wife, he didn't want the kids even exposed to what, the, he, the, he the situation in the room. Maintain you know, their innocence. He wanted to right, exactly, exactly. So there was something, yeah. There's there's something special about Harry where I think, yeah, he's both social conservative, but he's also not. He beats to his own drum, right? Like he's not afraid. He's not gonna. He he never, um, you know, kind of gave into the pressures of money or stardom or power. He was he always from every all the research I did. He constantly <laughs> seems to be this just genuine person, um, his entire Dig- life, and that's just something Dignity. I thought. I thought was just so cool and so different. Um, and one of the big reasons I wanted, wanted to, to feature him because there's, you know, there's so many people that talk about Hollywood and it's, you know, just full of awful, awful people. And there's certainly some truth to that, but it's like, it wasn't all that. And, you know, people like Harry who weren't constantly seeking out the headlines, you know, and of course, like the headlines are usually going to go to, you know, philanderers like Jack. Um, 
is that sells newspapers. But um, I, I think stories of people like Harry need to be told too. Yeah. That's, Harry was awesome. Tell the story of Zanuck leaving Warner. Was it because there can't be two Jack Warners? There's some of that. So there, there's a there's a, a couple wrinkles to this. Um, you know, before Zanuck leaves, or right around this time, um, Harry is priming his son Lewis to move up the company really quick. And sadly, Lewis dies. So this is you know the you know the Warner family not only loses Sam, but you know Lewis was a very popular member of the family. You know, everybody I found that was talked about him absolutely loved him. Um, he dies of like an infection from a wisdom tooth extraction. So it's like one of those things that makes you glad you're living now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no um, question. Yeah. It's like, oh man, that's that's terrifying that that can happen. Um, so so he dies and he was rising up and and you know, even I think Jack might have even thought that Harry was, Harry was priming Jack to, or Lewis to be the next Harry Warner. Jack was going to hold on to his place and like getting to Zanuck, right? Zanuck probably wanted to run a studio and as long as his last name wasn't Warner, he probably wasn't going to do it. Um, and in the press, there's all of this, you know, there was these, there, there were pay cuts and there was all this kind of stuff. So his his excuse in the press was that that the la- the studio is like below the line labor. Well, not even really above the I mean, so really anybody except for like executives got these big pay cuts and he thought that was unfair and he left because you were treating the labor unfairly. I think the real reason he left is because he wanted to run a studio and he saw an in with uh, with uh, 20th Century, which then took over Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think I think any of the stuff he put in the headlines, uh, my, there's probably truth to it, but I think the real reason he jumped ship, um, because he had a great job. I mean, he was producing some great movies and, and doing some great things at Warner Brothers. But uh, yeah, he was never going to take Jack's spot. They were too close in age. Um, you know, Jack wasn't going to retire and let Zanuck in. So, so Zanuck jumped ship, um, and, and became a studio boss of his own in a, in a couple of years. Yeah. Zanuck reminds me of kind of Robert Evans in the following generation at Paramount, right? Really good studio head, really good at what he did. Oh, that's a, that's a really great comparison. Yeah. Because somebody like Zanuck, just like Evans, not, not only kind of you had the the business savvy, you know, you could you could you could communicate to the top brass, but you had both of those producers had just such a great sense of what would make a good movie. Till til the cocaine got to him. Uh, yeah, and then there's that. Yeah. The, the the offer is one of Cole and my favorite. Oh, shows. great mo- like great movie, and we also know that like you know uh, David Saslav bought Robert Evans' old house in in Beverly Hills, so it's like there's so many. There's so many Hollywood rhymes and storytelling going on. It's crazy. Yeah. So the, the Warner Brothers had no problem showing principle. They pulled out of Germany in 1933. Groups like the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League also came out to push back on what was happening there. You mentioned their big get-together at the Shrine Auditorium. Cole just saw the Barbie premiere there in July. Was this the continued turn of Hollywood becoming far more political for better or for worse? Uh, yeah, there was a... And there's a lot of layers to this too. I mean, the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League was many things. It was both a, an anti-Nazi movement and also kind of a communist front group. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there, you know, and it brought, but it what it it create it was part of what was known as the Popular Front. A lot of historians have described this as as like this. It, it, there was like this weird. It was it was almost like a post 9/11 era where like everybody comes together for a brief amount of time 
And it was the same thing with with Nazi Germany, where you had people of of all you know a lot of political stripes coming together to stand against Nazi Germany, and and the popular it was you know just referred generally as a popular front. So the anti Nazi League, the Hollywood anti Nazi League, was one of these groups made up of, of of communists, fellow travelers, and just genuinely people who hated Nazis. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the Warners were part of, there's, there's a great book by Steve Ross called Hitler in Los Angeles, where he, he, he shows, he found a bunch of files of how the, the, the studios were funding uh, anti-Nazi espionage uh, in Los Angeles. So they, they, they were really probably ahead of a lot of people in the country mm-hmm. in terms of knowing how, how, uh, how much this was already infiltrating the United States. And I think that fueled a lot of their production interests as well. Again, trying to see, you know, what are we going to be talking about tomorrow? Um, you know, they started, you know, well, Harry was always giving lots of public speeches and he started talking about the problems in Europe and how he was worried because people he talked to in Europe weren't worried that the Nazis are going to start crossing borders. And they started making movies about, um, you know, first because we mentioned the production code. So one of the rules in the production code was that you you could not ridicule other na- nations and religions. So going after Nazi Germany, even though we should be able to go after Nazi Germany, actually violated one of the production code rules. So um, they did this allegorically for a while and made movies that you know about prejudice generically or about authoritarianism generically until 1939 where they come out with confessions of a Nazi spy and again their excuse here is this was covered in the New York Times uh, Leon Tarot un- FBI agent uncovered this spy ring and it was all over the news and and the Warner Brothers sent writers there to cover it and take notes and make a movie about it so um you know they eventually did violate the code but it it, it it was really kind of that at that time for better, of course, because it was, you know, they could again show that they were upfront with this. Like you said, they were, they were the first studio to pull out of Germany in 33 when Hitler took over, um, which was not an easy thing to do because Germany was a lucrative market. And there's been a lot of criticism in the last decade or so of Hollywood. Um, even I, I wrote for the Hollywood reporter last year that Ken Burns did his documentary about, about, um, uh, America's response to the Nazis and kind of throws Hollywood under the bus a little bit. And, you know, it was, you know, again, Warner brothers led there, but the, it was, it was tricky for a lot of the studios because you're trying to, trying to weather the depression and Germany's a lucrative market. And it's like, do we take the high road and risk our company? Um, or do we wait just a little bit to see, you know, maybe if this Nazi Germany thing implodes? I mean, it was it was a tricky situation, really, from like thirty three to like thirty eight, thirty nine. Well, and it, rem- it reminds me, it reminds me of like Apple commenting on social issues in America and then not even caring about them in China, for example. It's it has like touches of like this. We want to make money, so we'll focus on the issue if it helps our constituents in that market. Versus, you know, oh, that other market. Oh, well, and I think you pointed out like Louis Mayer continued to provide movies into Germany um, in a way that, you know, obviously the Warners did not. Um, let me let, let me pivot a little bit because I want to go labor relations becomes an increasing issue as you get past, you know, get into the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. Um, they were not all, always easy. And also, obviously agitators got involved from unions or pseudo unions, etc. I'm going to quote Wilson Misner with one of the funniest lines of your book. Quote, working for Warner Brothers is like effing a porcupine. 
It's a hundred pricks against one, end quote. I laugh my brains out. That's a great line. You know, I thought about this also as you talked about folks like Jerry Geisler, who obviously were always fixing problems, making sure that things went away or, you know, uh, uh, trouble, you know, disappeared. And he kind of played a fixer role. You know, if you were against the Warners, is that really, you know, if you came at odds with them, is that really what you'd end up thinking? Yeah, this one, and this is something that was kind of an industry norm. Um, you know, you had any Maddox at, at MGM. Um, you know, the, you know every studio kind of had its fixer. Um, at, at Warner's, you know, it, it's it's less obvious. Sometimes it's Jack. Sometimes it's Blaney Matthews, who was their head of security. Sometimes they reached out to Jerry Geisler, like you said, um, who was who was known of for getting everybody off of things that they shouldn't be. I mean, the whole sure. the whole the, the old saying in like Flynn and comes from that because he was Robert, you know, he, or he he uh, defended Errol Flynn in all of his statutory rape cases that he should it was probably really guilty of, um, but got off. And this was like I said, it was an industry norm. Uh, they were very protective of their PR. Um, they were, you know, and they were also a big part of this was they were in the star building business. So they, they had a lot invested in, you know, a lot of the people that they got that became stars became stars over the course of years at a given studio. So they, they invested time in building a persona, building a star image. So that, you know, that's one of the reasons why they were so careful of, you know, who, who is interviewing these stars and, and all of this kind of stuff. What kind of movies are they in? Is, you know, when the studio lends a star to another, it's like, is this, you know, if, if, if Warner brothers lends out Humphrey Bogart is like, is this going to be good for Humphrey Bogart's star persona? So it's like, in other words, if we lend him to MGM or Paramount or universal, is he going to come back to us a bigger star? And therefore this will still benefit us. So, you know, all these studios were really really careful about um yeah their their image and what's being said and you know they read the trades very carefully yeah. and um they they were yeah i mean jack brought in you know jerry to to get busby berkeley off when he you know killed somebody while he was driving drunk i mean there's they yeah they they worked really hard to to keep their employees out of trouble Casablanca and Yankee Doodle Dandy were very indicative of the wartime strategy. Explain how these movies played on the importance of what America was doing at the time. Yeah, well, and Warner Brothers was, they were really on the front lines. I mean, they were, you know, again, they were on the front lines doing their anti-Nazi movies in the 30s. Once we were in the war, you know, Warner Brothers seems to be the perfect place for, you know, these kinds of movies. And... Casablanca is a movie that there's a long storied history of Casablanca that other books have been written about. Uh, Noah Eisenberg has a great book about it. Algene Harmetz has another one. Uh, and, you know, Casablanca is one of these movies that like almost wasn't made and, you know, it wasn't good and the script was bad. And there's like a bunch of writers that, that every, you know, it was talk about a movie by committee. This is one of those. And it just kind of came together at the perfect time you know, almost by accident. I mean, coming out right around when the Casablanca conference was and all these world leaders were in North Africa. Um, but yeah, there's, but it's, it's interesting, you know, all these things and there's so, you know, if any movie is Warner brothers, I mean, it's Casablanca mm -hmm. and, you know, this movie about the greater good and trying to fight for the greater good. I mean, it's Harry Warner's all over this thing. Um, but you also mentioned Yankee Doodle Dandy, right? I mean, one of the most patriotic movies ever, you know, people still watch it on 4th of July. 
And, you know, that's another one that brought, you know, great talent together, you know, uh, historically significant, you know, movie about a historically significant, um, you know, composer who put together these these famous songs. Then you bring, you know, James Cagney, who's one of the biggest stars in the world, also happens to be a professional dancer. So he could pull this stuff off and, you know, on screen. Um, you know, Warner Brothers during the war, I mean, they and they also contributed to the Hollywood Canteen. Um, in Los Angeles, which was a which was a, a club that was open to and free always for you know, servicemen, um, and everybody working there was you know Hollywood employees. You know, Betty Davis was one of the people running the show there. She's a big Warner Brothers star. Um, so yeah, Warner Brothers was was front and center uh, for for the war effort for sure. All their movies, you know, they had. You know, Errol Flynn, who I just mentioned, you know, he was in a bunch of these war movies, a whole series of them. Yeah, how big of a mistake was Mission to Moscow in 1942 versus, say, doing it in 1955? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mission to Moscow. Yeah, that was one of those movies that seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, so it's interesting. So they make Mission to Moscow, and I think it was 44. And by 1947, Jack Warner's under the hot light, under the House Committee, uh, who's grilling him for making this pro-Russia propaganda. Um but it's, yeah, we were briefly in World War II. A lot of people forget we were allied with Russia for a little while. Um, and so we weren't the only studio to make uh, a pro-Russia movie. I know MGM made one, Fox made one. And uh, the, the biggest problem with Mission to Moscow is that it was based on an account from Ambassador Davies who even his account, uh, his own book uh, whitewashed the, the purge trials pretty horribly. Um, so it just kind of made everyone who was, you know, sent to death in these purge trials, they were all bad actors and Russia was the good actor in this. Um, when historically we know that wasn't the case. Uh, and so they made this movie, uh, you know, it's not like, not unlike, uh, their, uh, my four years in Germany, you know, they, they optioned another book written by an ambassador who had been in this country. It, it was a movie that worked well in a moment in time, um, but it, it aged horribly almost immediately uh, because, you know, of course, the Red Scare was right around the corner and HUAC comes in uh, looking at Hollywood and communist infiltration. And here's Warner Brothers with this big pro-Soviet movie. Yeah. Yeah. So how tough was the Hollywood 10 and the blacklist for the Warner Brothers? Yeah, this is this is an always a tricky part of history. Uh, you know, I think there's some newer newer strands of thought that. You know, there's a lot of books on the Red Scare in Hollywood that make make all the moguls out to be just these, like, rabid anti-communists. You know, because the whole the Waldorf uh, meeting, which was the beginning of the blacklist, which is where the the studios decided they were not going to hire anybody who has publicly been connected to any kind of communist cause, uh, had less to do with any kind of political interest and more to do with the fact that they felt that if they didn't take a stand, people would stop going to movies. Um, mm. and, uh, and, and even Louis B. Mayer, Jack Warner, I, I found lots of statements and, and interviews and, and other people that work with them that said that these people never cared about the, the politics of their employees. But during the Red Scare, they were kind of forced to publicly weigh in. And, you know, even, I think I quote um, in my book, I know even in Reagan's memoir, uh, you know, because he was the president of, of the Screen Actors Guild at this time, right? And he was he was front and center for this whole thing. Uh, he even looked back at that and thought that 
man, the, the House committee came after Hollywood for because it would get headlines, but there wasn't really – I mean, were there communists in Hollywood? Yeah, but was there like communist spies trying to enact – you know, put propaganda into movies? Not really. Um, there was too many too many cooks in the kitchen for any movie for you know any one person to get uh, too much you know. Bad political ideas are different than being a spy. The Oppenheimer movie does a gr- great job of handling the gathering of the premier scientists, th- then coming back later and fears about them being many of them being communists. Yeah, manifested. Um, yeah. Let's see. So I want I want to because you you touch on this and i by the way here's a n- whole nother book all the side investments of warner brothers were really interesting so like they get into the music business which by the way it's one of the three largest publishing businesses in the world today <laughs> i mean it just blows my mind even just like and i know that's not the focus of your book but i was like wow these guys just they were brilliant the other is warner brothers ab- animation you touch on this gold mine of talent and people and characters and as you talk about the Burbank studio, you know, it was just a, like a small building they were in. They called it Termite Terrace. So kind of touch on some of the people and the characters that flourished really at a time when, you know, those characters didn't get big till many years later. Right. Yeah. They, and, and I think this comes back to Sam too, where they, you know, they, they are not afraid to, to invest in what the next big thing is. So like you said, you know, they, they, they get into the music business. They get into, you know, they really did not want to deal with television. They started getting into that and they brought in actually, um, I've been talking in recent months to Greg Orr, who is Jack Warner's grandson. His dad, Bill Orr was, was head of Warner brothers television for a long, for I think all those early years. Mm-hmm. Also thinking of like, you mentioned, um, Theodore, uh, uh, you know, Dr. Seuss theater. Was it, is it, Gessel or what was I don't oh remember. yeah 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 oh yeah the talent that was there right yeah they, they well yeah the the animation they 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 did not care about animation and it just boggles my mind because I, I was expecting to write more about animation and you know there there was animation as early as the the Bronson studios they were there um and you know with their you know their their you know self you know their termite terrace and even as they got big and popular and like in some of like I found in some of the trade magazines I found reader polls where like some of the some of their characters were out polling Disney you know they I know Disney was a much smaller operation but <laughs> yeah it's but really it's like interesting they, I know they had they had these big characters and it's like they didn't even care yeah um yeah. and there's some anecdotes where where either it's not, it depends on you know sometimes it's attributed to Jack sometimes to Harry it sounds more like Jack where Jack thought that they had they had or they had uh, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Didn't. So um, let's see. So uh, you know, I find the Warners to be you know so pragmatic, right? That you could just tell that they're just business people. They have their pulse, they have their finger on the pulse of what's going on. And you know, these are culturally Jewish people, and in many cases, they're practicing Jews as well, and very tied in in the Jewish community. Hillcrest Country Club, for example, you mentioned, which was a very Jewish kind of a hangout in LA, because that's where they could be accepted as a group compared to the other, I'll call it waspy places in town. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read a couple quotes because I just think this is so interesting. Uh, quote: The motion picture presents right and wrong as the Bible does. By showing both the right and wrong, we teach the right, end quote. That was said by Harry. Another quote from Harry. The victory, quote, the victory of good over the forces of evil and intolerance so that the world will actually live and practice the teaching of Christ, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, end quote. This is not what Jewish people normally quote. 
right? And that, that what they kind of say, hey, here's the hallmark of what we're trying to reach to in society. And yet at the same time, they were saying that because they believed and understood that to be the pulse of America at the moment they were out in the culture. Um, I, I mean, this just seems so pragmatic. Yeah, they yeah, and he you know, he took this stuff very you know I think he, he even you know he he saw you know he was Harry was a learner you know he wanted to learn about the world he wanted to learn about all faiths he wanted to learn about all politics and try to understand you know what what made people tick and you know he you know the, there's another thing I, I write in my book where he's you know in the late 30s he's having meetings at his house. Um, trying to get people to read books um, that he read and and trying to you know have conversations about how they can build bridges between politics and faiths and try to bring people together. I mean, I think that's what his his big goal was was always for the public good. And it was to use movies for the public good, of course, but also he himself, you know, he he's a perfect example of that where he's trying, he's always trying to be a good role model for his kids. He's trying to use his platform as this major studio president um, to set a good example um, for people to follow. And he's doing this publicly, and he's also doing this behind closed doors constantly. You know, Just, there's there's a story I have in there about where he's trying to save all the displaced families from the Holocaust. Um, and he, he said he'd fund bringing them all over here. I mean, who else was doing that? You know, what private citizen – um, was you know he, he he had all these meetings with President Truman he, he you know I've got his meeting notes from these these meetings where he's trying to Harry was willing to build infrastructure in Alaska to bring all the displaced families from war torn Europe to Alaska so that we could slowly percolate them down into the United States so it wouldn't be you know a million or two million people at once um, and it's just that that you know none of that was publicized you know that was just all in archival notes and it's like that's sure. That speaks to the kind of person that Harry was. Like he would go out and give his speech about doing good, and here's what he's doing on his own time. Yeah, wow. The, the Warners looked at Rebel Without a Cause as highlighting the parental delinquency problem in America, but other religious groups didn't see it this way. Was it just that they were portraying what people didn't want to admit at the time? The, the delinquency thing is an, is an interesting one. I mean, I think that was... Again, this is them, I think, on the on the pulse of, of what's being talked about, right? You've got... The teenager is becoming more a focus of popular culture in the 50s. And that's what's interesting. You look back at old movies, it's all people in their like 20s or late 20s and older for, for the most part. And now you're starting to have movies focus on, on teens. You know, you have the rise of rock and roll, you have television, you have all these kind of pop culture movements coming into play. And and Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, is is a great example of Warner Brothers' input on that, but but also just I mean in, in the book I talk about you mean Jack Warner even ends up in the hot seat uh, of a Senate investigation over this movie where uh, Senator Kefauver, who had just tried to take down the mob, now <laughs> goes after movies um, and clearly was ill prepared because he thought the Wild yeah. One with with Marlon Brando was a Warner Brothers movie, which it wasn't, and then he's talking about Rebel Without a Cause, a movie that wasn't even done yet. Yeah. <laughs> and he yeah. claims to know all this stuff about it, um, but I think I think that was them both being on the pulse, but also you know commenting on you know here's this new new uh, subject matter. age group that's getting a new yeah. a new focus new consideration that people are talking about and they've got this young star right that's that's taking over the world. Um, it was it was a perfect conduit. It can be said that Harry Warner didn't die that he was killed by Jack. 
explain the betrayal that took place. Oh, yeah, this is this is sad. Um, and, and it's interesting. I mean, it really everybody in, in, in closer to Harry truly believes that Jack killed Harry, whereas, you know, some people in Jack's corners, you know, see it a little bit less so, um, which I can elaborate on. But but really what happened was, you know, go, going back to Ben and Pearl, right, their influence on the family um, – which was this kind of all for one mentality, right? If you stick together, you will, you'll persevere through anything. So it was really important for Harry and really for the other, I mean, for Albert as well, uh, to, to retire together. You know, they, they built this thing together. Let's get out together. And, you know, this is tricky because Jack was a lot younger than his older brothers. So he wasn't quite ready to retire, but he said he would. Um, and what ultimately ended up happening. So they're selling to, uh, uh, an investor they're selling to uh, Serge Semenenko, and Jack Warner takes a deal to buy some of his shares back, uh, as well as take Harry's job. So not not only does he stay in as the studio boss, but now he's the president of Warner Brothers. And this this breaks Harry's heart. Um, you know, there's an interview uh, with Harry's secretary where she she was there. You know, she describes what the day was like when Harry got the call that Jack took over. Um, and not long after that, Harry had a heart attack from which he never fully recovered. So he really lived the rest of his life in in, in a lessened state um, over this. I mean, it really broke him. This was in 56. Harry died in 58. Jack never came home for the funeral. That was another rift with the family. Jack was was gallivanting in Europe. Uh, yeah, for, for a lot of people, it's kind of described as the betrayal. I know I, I've been talking to Greg Orr, who's Jack's grandson, who sees it. I mean, he certainly understands why people are miffed at Jack, but he also sees it as Jack just taking an opportunity, you know, just taking a business opportunity, which it was. It's also, there's no way that Jack didn't know how this would impact the rest of the family. Sure. Because he had, you know, he he had been the rabble rouser forever. He had, he had frustrated his family by doing far less. So he knew the impact this would have. And I think that's what kind of hangs me up about it with, with Jack's decision. Like, sure, it was a business decision, but, you know, he call, could have also been more forthcoming with his brothers. So Warner Brothers, um, in kind of this classic, like your, your point, your thesis, you know, they're reflective of the culture. Well, this plays all the way out even to the ownership of the studio. To your point, um, they're swallowed up eventually, uh, like the other studios were, by bigger, you know, conglomerates in the go-go 1960s. Um, uh, they were bought by Kinney National Services, which, and this is laughable, but this was common. Like this was like Wall Street thought in the 60s. Kinney National Services was in the parking lot and the funeral parlor business, <laughs> right? It's like, oh yeah, that's, that's, yeah, I can see the crossover with movies. There's quote unquote synergies, right? Doesn't this show again that they are just right at the, they're always kind of like at that cultural thread, that cultural hot uh, flash, you know, that that's where Warner Brothers finds itself time and time again. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, yeah, they, they get it bought out by Kinney and then Seven Arts and yeah, there's, there's, yeah, well, and this was a, an interesting part of Hollywood history too, because when you think about it, you know, this, these studios were run by the founders of the industry until the late fifties, early sixties. So the you know the people at the top were still the founders of the industry. So this was really once you get into the nineteen sixties, this was really the first time that that generation is aging out, and now you know we're, they're, they're hit with a, the industry has this kind of like now what moment. So either either families taking over or they're cashing in their chips, 
And in a lot of these cases, it was other companies were, were buying out, right? With Warner's, it was Kinney and, you know, Universal, you know, MCA was was going after. And, you know, there was, there was, it was just, it was an era of merger mania. Mel Brooks made a movie out of this called Silent Movie, and he called Gulf and Western Engulf and Devour. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and That's by right, the, which also, is perfect. Wait, wait, the other movie that I think does gives a really good picture of what this era was in the movie business is, you know, we mentioned The Offer. I mean, that, that, that TV show that's on Paramount right now uh, that Miles Teller produced, um, you know, here is Robert Evans going to New York all the time to have to, you know, prove that what he's doing isn't crazy. And, um, you know, it's, it, so I, I think it gives a great picture, but again, they were just reflective of what was going on on wall street. K- Kenny just wanted to be one, one for the parking, two for the show, three to get ready and four the funeral partner business to go. We'll, we'll edit that out. I don't think that was that funny. So don't, don't laugh. I think it's funny. <laughs> um, let's see. So, so well, Jack- I'm glad you mentioned the offer because that's, yeah, all those scenes between, between Evans and, and Charlie, like that's, that's, it does a really good job of depicting what it was probably like because, you know, it, it, in the era just before that, you didn't have to justify movie making. Um, and now you you know you have people who don't understand how movies work, what where the investments need to be, you know why it's worth paying more for a big star because it'll sell yeah. a movie. You know now you had you kind of had to teach these new owners how the business worked. Correct. Um, so Jack was really the only studio head that got to go out on top and go out how he'd want to. I think is what I took away from your book. Um, it, it explain like what happened to uh, you know Louis Mayer and Zanuck versus Jack. Yeah, Louis Louis was kind of forced out. Um, you know, there there was some more takeovers. I mean, and he was always. I mean, MGM. I mean, he was the big kind of star head of MGM, but he was still he still had to. You know, he was in L.A. He was still um, you know under the umbrella of New York offices, so he was he still had to answer to Lowe's. Um, so that board forced him out. Zanuck had kind of this in and out and back again. You know, he put his son, Richard Zanuck, in in in, a, in the studio boss role when he was on the board, and then he was off, and then he was back. So there was kind of this tumultuous bouncing around with Zanuck, uh, where I think the company didn't know what to do with this old dog who was still trying to fight around. Whereas Jack, Jack stayed in for a long time. And and what's interesting about Jack is that he, even though in his last years with the studio. Um, you know, he was the president, so he had Harry's job, and Harry was usually in New York. Jack was such a movie maker that even when he was the president, he didn't move to New York. He stayed in L.A., and he stayed on the Burbank lot, and he kept overseeing production. So he, you know, he was, you know, for all of his faults, I mean, he, he was a true movie guy. I mean, he knew how to make movies. He knew how to edit movies. He knew what would sell movies. Um you know he and and the you know any whatever parent company was owning uh, was smart to have him in there because he knew the business that they didn't and he could fill those gaps. But yeah, he he stuck around long into you know long enough to complain about Bonnie and Clyde and fight with Warren Beatty and um, William Atherton, the actor William Atherton in a bookstore in L.A. And the bookstore owner was a friend of his, and I was talking to this bookstore owner, and I was just starting the research on this book. I was out there doing research, and and he 
is he apparently Bill Atherton, big old Hollywood fan, and early in his career, he was did some stuff at Warner Brothers, and he 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 said, "Man, Warren Beatty, he's like that guy has so many stories about Jack Warner and fighting with Jack Warner, you know, being the young hot commodity on the lot, you know, and Jack the old dog." And I you know I couldn't get in touch with with Beatty. Beatty doesn't want to doesn't really do interviews, um, but you know I found enough of his stories that. Uh, you know, it was just kind of cool to get that firsthand, like, you know, somebody had heard this stuff from Beatty, sure. um, you know, it's still, still amused by it, you know, and Warner Brother, you know, telling, you know, look at the WB, what do you think that stands for? And of course, Warren Beatty apparently said, you know, oh, it stands for Warren Beatty. Yeah, those are my initials, I think is what you said in the book. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're your name, but they're my initials, he said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> And, you know, so he, yeah, he stayed around to, to have these fights and stuff. And even once he left Warner Brothers, he started his own little production company and made a couple of small movies. He made 1776 and then he made, uh, you know, a, a Billy the Kid movie. And those were through Columbia. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, it wasn't, it was his own independent and what, but yeah, nothing was tracking back through Warner Brothers. Um, and uh, yeah, and he, he did that until he couldn't. Yeah. Prior to reading your book, Chris, my only touch to Jack Warner. And again, I'll go back to, you know, a touch of the offer is in The Godfather when he goes to see uh, Jack Waltz. Tom Tom Hagen goes to see Jack Waltz, uh, you know, to get, uh, you know, what was supposed to be Frank Sinatra uh, out of his, you know, contract. And, you know, obviously Jack Waltz wakes up with the dead head horse, his racing horse, which probably was a touch on Harry because obviously he was the big racehorse fan. Um, but he wakes up with that with that because obviously Jack Waltz in that movie, um, you know, was sleeping with all the talent, which was much more Jack Warner than Harry. Obviously, and Sinatra and, got to her. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, you know, that was my only reference. So like going into this is like, well, there's some of that that's true, but it's kind of an amalgamation of characters. And I, I look at like I'm looking back at my notes. Um, I mean, just to go through it, there's there's so much goodness. We didn't even touch on JFK. Or probably uh, Joe, Joe Kennedy. Um, we didn't touch on JFK either. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. We didn't talk about a lot of the other brothers and sisters. You must read this book. It's yeah, it, we didn't fantastic. talk about the FDR years and how close they got with FDR and the administration. So there's a lot of great topics that you know we didn't have time for. I do want to just kind of open it up to you. Is there anything else that that we haven't talked about that you do think needs to be mentioned about Jack, Harry, or or the family at large? Sure. I mean, one of the things with Jack, you know, yeah, he's he's portrayed in a lot of ways. And you know, one of the things that I found, so probably the biggest surprise for me was I found a lot more positive stuff about Jack. I just expected to find way more awful things. And, I, you know, I got the sense, and I'm glad this was confirmed after I wrote the book, but I was, I was talking to Greg Orr, Jack's grandson, and he had said, because I asked about the whole kind of casting couch situation. We know Zanuck was that guy. We know Louis Mayer was that guy. Um, we know DeMille was that guy. Um, but I was like, I don't, you know, Jack, yeah, Flander, absolutely. Cheated on his wife, absolutely. Um, but it was like, I never got the casting couch vibe from anything Warner Brothers and Greg had he made a documentary about Jack and he he went to London to show it to Olivia de Havilland and this came up and he asked if you know what was where was that kind of stuff at Warner Brothers just kind of assuming that it was and she said there wasn't time for that at Warner Brothers they were too they run too tightly there was no room for any kind of BS there was you know there was you know there was shenanigans no doubt but it wasn't the the predatory casting couch stuff that you know of lore um, 
so I, w- I was glad to have that confirmed that it wasn't as ugly. And even when at, at the end, when Jack, it, there was a celebration of his life in 1980, and all these surviving stars were there, and they all, you know, all these people could have just unloaded on how awful he was. And they, you know, all the stuff that they said was stuff they said at the time. Like he was, he was a tough boss. He was not always fair with his contracts, but he was a great movie maker. And he knew movies. He knew people. Um, you know, so it was like a lot of this stuff tracks a little more fairly um, than I than I expected, and I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and of course, you know, as we've talked about, you know, the Harry Warner stuff. I mean, Harry's story. I just I want I want people to read this more than anything, just to learn about Harry. Agree, and I and I think I think um, to your point, not only did Harry espouse this this incredible person, but even I think what Harry did. Jack saw it as virtue. In other words, what he did philanthropically later in his life was really hairy, but it had rubbed off on Jack. And so I think there's a there's a huge story into the leadership that Harry provided and thus Jack drafted in in so many respects. Um, Chris, this has just been a blast. I mean, like, yeah. huge you know, Harry fan. we love this. We, we uh, I think as uh, a couple well, of so much. Hung, hungry suburban kids, uh, you know, this is, you know, this kind of speaks to our heart and, and we love your storytelling. Um, reading the Warner Brothers will help our audience and listeners understand uh, the importance of how movies are a deep view into the soul of American society. You will also learn how personal decisions are made to take risk and provide the content that America wants. And as we talked about, in some cases, needs. It is a great American story of a family, but particularly brothers bootstrapping from small town Ohio to the pinnacle of wealth and fame, uh, all the way from LA to New York. Um, thank you again, Chris, for your time. If you enjoyed this podcast, go to Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to A Book With Legs. Give us a review and tell others about the books and great authors like Chris that we have the opportunity to discuss and understand the world with. Uh, for our tribe, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send your suggestions to us on Twitter. Our handle is at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeetcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.